0: I'm not sure if last week's uh, sermon uh, on eternal life gave you something to think about. Um, I hope it did, and I hope you're chewing on that a little bit and just letting it letting it sink in. And again, um, if you have any questions or anything you'd like to discuss with me, please feel free to do that. And um, I suspect and actually hope a little bit that this week's sermon will do the same. It's been just fascinating for me to go through this book of John and to just approach it from some different perspectives. And that really changes a lot. Today, we're going to look at two stories from John chapter four and chapter five. I had said in Friday's letter that we were going to do a larger piece, which would include these two miracles. One is where Jesus heals the official son. And then where he heals the blind, the lame man in the pool of Bethesda. And then we were going to cover some of Jesus speaking interaction with the Pharisees. But when I got working on it, that was just too much. We'd be here. We'd be here through the Eagles game. Uh, and we can't have that, of course. So I'm just going to be dealing with the son of the official who got healed and, um, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. But before we start, And here's the little paradigm shift I want to present to you. If you read these texts and if you read these stories with the question in your mind, what do these stories tell us about how to get God to change from being angry with me to being happy with me? Or what do these texts tell us about how to escape from eternal punishment to heaven What do these texts tell me? How do they show me the way to be sure that I can go to heaven when I die? These stories aren't going to help you very much.
1: They don't work well.
0: They're not very clear. They're a bit contradictory. They give you different messages. They don't tell a consistent story. And for those of us that have grown up with a rather um, full theological education, um, some of us who grew up in the CRC have a pretty significant theological education behind us, and, and we've learned some things in that theological education. There's some things in these stories that don't fit very well with that either. It's just not easy to do that. But if You read these texts from the perspective that we talked about last week. What is eternal life? Remember we talked about this last week. Eternal life is not, I'm in heaven when I die. Eternal life, as the New Testament uses, is the life of the age. The life of the the age of God. This new thing that's breaking into the age of death. Remember the video we showed last week. If you read these stories from that perspective, what does it look like when the age of God breaks into the age of death? What does it look like when God's space meets our space? What does it look like when we meet God in this life today, in the here and now, in the person of Jesus. And then, and this is totally in my humble opinion, you get another perspective. It's not all wrapped up in a bow. It doesn't answer every question. It doesn't mean, oh, now I understand everything and it's clear to me. But it allows us, I think, to number one, accept the text for what it is without having to bend it into a, Uh, a way of thinking. And I think it helps us apply it to our lives of today in a new and fresh way. So that's what I'd like to try to do just briefly with us this morning. So let's read the first story. John chapter four starts verse forty three. on the screen, of course, or if you have your own Bibles, obviously feel free. After these two days, and this was the two days that he was with the Samaritan woman in the village of Sychar, Jesus departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water in, where he had made the water wine. And you remember, I don't know, three weeks ago or so, we talked about that uh, story. At Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The father knew that it was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, from the paradigm of. What do I have to do to make sure that God is not angry anymore? This story doesn't make a lot of sense. When the man comes to Jesus, he's obviously traveled some distance, his son is ill. The first thing Jesus said to him is kind of puts him down. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So Jesus is like knocking him down, criticizing him. There's no evidence in this story that Jesus performed this miracle based on any faith of this man it was only afterwards after the miracle happened that the man took Jesus at his word and departed and believed, realized that the healing had occurred at the same time as Jesus word there's no indication about the content of his faith what did he believe What did he believe about Jesus? What did he know about Jesus? I think probably the only thing he knew was that he'd heard that Jesus healed people. That was it. It was all he had in his head. So this story doesn't give us a whole lot of things to grab onto. If we're asking ourselves the question, what do I need to believe or know in order to get there? just doesn't say a lot about that. Most of the commentaries that you read try to put this story and the next story in that framework. So here's a quote from one of the commentaries that I looked at this week. This man and his household were examples of those who exercised true faith in Jesus, examples the evangelist wants his readers to emulate. Now, I think this commentator is reading a ton into this
1: story that isn't there. It's A simple
0: story about a man who meets Jesus and whose son gets healed. Let's look at the next story. The healing at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. Should appear on your screen. There we go. Thank you. After this. There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It's a little bit unknown what feast that was. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, And told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And again, from the perspective of what do I need to do to get there? This story doesn't make a lot of sense. Jesus walks into this area of this pool. There's a whole bunch of people there who are lame and blind and and crippled, and he goes up to one man and he asks him a fairly silly question. Seems to me, "Do you want to be healed?"
1: Well, of course.
0: And then Jesus just heals him. There's no faith. Man doesn't do anything. Jesus just looks at him and says, up and go. And then none of the other people are healed. It's just this, at least John doesn't tell us about that. It's just this, this one person. The man, in contrast to the official, doesn't even know who Jesus is. So this man walks up to him, says, get up your mat and walk, and he does, and Jesus disappears, and the man has no idea who Jesus is. And then later, Jesus comes back to him when he's in the temple and comes up to him and says this really weird thing. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So that leads, of course, to all kinds of conjectures. What's the role of sin in the story? And there's plenty of commentaries that suggest that the man 38 years ago must have led some kind of a sinful life. Maybe. It's interesting that two other places in the Gospels, one of which is in John, and you may remember this, uh, Jesus and his disciples in John John 9 meet a man who was blind from birth, and the disciples say to him, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, none of them. This This doesn't come because of sin. And then in Luke 13, Jesus is talking with his disciples about 18 people who got killed when a a tower fell on them. He says this didn't happen because of sin necessarily, it just happened. So what's the role of sin in this? And who was sinning? And why does Jesus say this? There's just nothing clear about this. And then it appears, and this is a really interesting thing, The Pharisees, the Jews, the Jewish leaders were upset at Jesus and the man uh, because Jesus was healing on the Sabbath and the man was carrying his mat on the Sabbath. They questioned the man. The man says, I don't know who did it. Later he meets Jesus. And what does the man do? Possibly. He goes and rats on Jesus. He goes to the leaders. He says, that's the man that did it. That's the man you're after. And the next sentence is, Now they really decided they wanted. Now they were really furious with them. So what? Do we need faith or don't we? And what kind of faith? And what role does sin play? In the one healing, sin seems to be an issue. In the other, it's not an issue at all. How much does one need to know about Jesus? One of the commentaries that I use in, in commenting on this story of the lame man says this, and I quote, It is possible to experience an exciting miracle and still not be saved and go to heaven. This commentary is reading this story through the lens of what does it tell me about how to get to heaven when I die? And therefore, a conclusion in it's possible to be healed by Jesus, to experience a miracle, and still not. You catch all the assumptions and all the framework, that's through the interpretation of this story. What do I think is happening here? What I think is happening here is what we've talked about last week and this week right at the beginning. Jesus... God's space is meeting our space. The age of death, the age of life, is meeting the age of death. And in these two stories with two different people, one of whom is very privileged, I find that very interesting, one of them is a privileged official, the other is a marginalized person on the throne to the scrap heap of society. And Jesus walks into their world of death as the bringer of life. He meets them as they are. He responds to their needs and situations. And there's
1: love. And there's concern.
0: And there's healing power. And there's truth. He says to the official, you people don't believe unless I do a miracle. And he says to the blind man, don't sin anymore. Because if you keep sinning or if you sin, things will happen. That's the way that's the way this age of death works and you've now contacted this age of life. Don't go back to this age of death. Jesus doesn't demand anything. It's not like you have to do or believe something in order to come in contact with the age of life. Jesus just shows up and breaks in. Different in every situation. Always appropriate. Always designed to bring healing. Always designed to change fundamental things about the way we live. And always designed to move forward into new life in the new age. Step by step. Person by person. Still incomplete. Because as Paul tells us in his writings in Romans, creation still groans. It's not completely healed. But in Jesus, this age of life, eternal life in the New Testament, has met the age of death. Sparks are flying, and things are happening. And they're appropriate for every person, for every context, for every group, for every place around the world. Jesus breaking in. And doing what he does. So does that and how does that change how we live? Well, I think it should change how we live. There is a choice that you can make. And that is to ignore Jesus coming. This morning in the New York Times There was an article. You may be aware that the World Cup is starting today in Qatar. There was an article about some statements that were made last night by Gianni Infantino, who's the president of FIFA. And he was speaking, I believe, to the press. And I'm quoting from the New York Times. He sounded almost beseeching, urging the news media, presumably, not to criticize the players, before I read this, I, I just in case you're not aware, there's a lot of controversy about this World Cup being in Qatar. There's been a lot of ton of corruption and a ton of bribery involved right from the very beginning of, of granting the World Cup to Qatar. Um, there's been, in general, pretty bad treatment of the migrant workers that they've called in from around the world. More than 6,500 migrant workers have died building the stadiums. I just read this morning that organizations are providing travel and tickets to fans of the participating teams, including dozens of Americans, but only if they promise not to criticize Qatar and to report people who do. Free ticket, free flights to Qatar, hotel game tickets, everything, but don't criticize Qatar and anybody you hear criticizing Qatar, report them. That's the background. So Gianni Infantino sounded almost beseeching, urging the news media, presumably not to criticize the players, not to criticize Qatar, not to spoil the fun for everyone watching at home. We all have difficult times, he said although he chose not to discuss whether all those difficulties are equal or even really comparable. all Listen to this. All any of us craves, he said, is the chance to forget those worries for a while, to have some time when we don't have to think about this, but can instead concentrate on something we love, and that thing is football. And the New York Times goes on. It's hard to think of a more fitting summary for this World Cup, for the World Cup in general, for the way FIFA sees the world. Life is hard, complicated, and unhappy. The age of death. But try not to talk about it, or ask any questions about it, or even think about it at all. It's better, far better, not to resist but instead to sit back and allow it to wash over you and through you an opiate against the pain. Now, no one's suggesting you shouldn't enjoy a vacation or you shouldn't enjoy a movie that takes you away or a music concert or whatever it is that, that gives you rest and refreshment. The whole point of what's being said here is, here's this age of death. And how do we deal with this age of death? We distract ourselves into something else so that we can forget about it and not have to see it and not have to deal with it. And that's not what Jesus does. That's not what God does. Jesus comes right in, right into that official's life, right into that pool of Siloam, and he does his thing. And the age of God, the age of life, breaks into that age of death. This Friday evening, Cindy and I attended a gala for an organization, CASA, which I think most of you know about, Court Appointed Special Advocates for Children, for which I volunteer. They told the story of this last year. Well, actually, they have existed for 30 years. And it's exactly this story of life breaking into death. Life breaking into the lives of children in the foster system. Children who have undergone all kinds of abuse and neglect in all kinds of ways. And are all traumatized. And very consciously going into those children's lives. And listening to them. And being sensitive to their cultural and ethnic and racial and gender context. Who do I have in front of me here? What kind of a child or youth is this? Supporting. And speaking truth. I heard the story of one advocate recently. One of his boys. 17 years old. I got a girlfriend, which many 17 year old boys do. And they were talking about this girlfriend. And I think every time they met, it was just a part of their topic of conversation. And this advocate said, every time this boy talks about his girl, his girlfriend, I ask him the question, are you respecting her? I'm not giving him the talk about sex not telling him what to do not giving him any rules i'm not moralizing or lecturing him i'm asking him a simple question are you respecting her breaking into that youth's life and trying to break into that relationship with a concept that's of the age of life or another thing i had i had this week a continuing education course a, um, a seminar focused on this issue of how to have the talk, what they call the talk. You all remember the talk when you had that with your parents or when you had to do it as a parent, that was about sex. This talk is about what do you do as a black young man when you're confronted with the police department and to proactively bring that up and drop it on the table. What does that mean? How are you going to deal with it? And how can we who are around you help you deal with it? This is the age of life breaking into the age of death. And not only in the level of the child, but on the level of the adults, the bio parents, the foster parents, the grandparents, the school teachers, the therapists, the doctors, the lawyers, the CYS case workers, the juvenile probation officers and their staff, and maybe even the judges. And then not just at that level, CASA is committed to training staff, volunteers, and our governing body members to increase the awareness and understanding of issues related to disproportionality, that certain races are disproportionately unfairly treated, and different outcomes within our local child welfare and court systems. So from the individual, the child, up to the adult world, all those individuals, and then up into systems, the age of life is breaking into the age of death in all kinds of creative ways, and hopefully as much as people can do it, suited to the situation.
1: So where in
0: your life is the age of life, the age of God, breaking into the age of death? Where do you see that happening? Is that even a perspective that you have as you even think about your Christian faith? How is Jesus walking into this situation? How is Jesus walking into this pool of Siloam at Bethesda? How is Jesus walking into the life and family of this official? How is Jesus walking into my life? And how is the age of life, the age of God touching this age of death? I can pretty much guarantee you, if you start thinking that way, I'm not suggesting you haven't been or aren't, but it's, it's been really helpful to me. And you start to see him showing up all over the place.
1: Even at a Casa Gala. Say, hey, this is happening.
0: This is not a hopeless business. This death, this agony, this pain, this sorrow, this sadness, this loss, this sin, this addiction. This is not the end of the story. The age of life has broken in and is breaking in. That's what this is about.
1: How are you seeing that? How
0: could that inform your Thanksgiving this year? And then the second question, of course, is this one. How are you bringing this life of the age into the world in which you live?
1: Your school, in your home, your work, your social life,
0: where you give your money, where you spend your time. How are you following Jesus into these lives? Not solving every problem. Not tying everything up in a nice bow. And not just saying the only thing that counts is what happens when you die. How are you in your life? And how are we in our lives? Walking with Jesus. Bearing the age of life the age of God, and breaking into this age of death. I'm convinced that that's what the story of the Bible is about, particularly the story of the New Testament as we see it in Jesus. There's nothing more hopeful. There's nothing that gives a better reason to live than to go with Jesus on this journey into all the places Where death appears to be reigning, and say instead, No, Jesus is king. You aren't. Now let's see what happens when Jesus shows up. And Jesus has chosen nowadays to show up in you. It's your hands, it's your feet, it's your eyes, it's your heart. It's your thinking that Jesus is choosing to use as the age of life breaking into the age of death. Amen.